This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. Welcome to Retail Retold, everyone. Today we have Nicholas Roth. Nick is the head of real estate for Rooms to Go. He's been in the industry north of 20 years. He's been senior director and head of real estate at multiple companies such as Office Depot, Pet Supermarket. He's been on the landlord side. I was lucky enough to do a crazy downsize deal with him in Cheektowaga, New York. Excited to have him. Welcome to the show, Nick. Thanks, Chris. Good to be here. So, Nick, why don't you tell everybody uh, a little bit about you, what the head of real estate at Rooms to Go does, and what's going on? Um, okay. Well, interestingly, Rooms to Go is kind of an unusual company because it's privately held. And my job really isn't, I guess it's head of real estate, but um, you wear all the hats. So we are primarily an owner and self-developer of retail and distribution center. So I'm doing the retail on the, on the DCs. We occasionally ground lease. Once in a while, we do a space lease as a tenant. And uh, we other also have properties that were first-gen stores that we've held on to the recent real estate, in some cases, even second-gen stores because the company's been around now for 30 years. Um, and we lease them out. So we're a landlord as well. So you get, you get to play all of the games in the business in this job, which is kind of fun. Your landlord, your tenant, and your developer. A lot of fun. You know, and, and you know, being able to work in the development of the DCs for me is a new thing because I've, I've always worked for bigger companies that had separate industrial folks. So that part of it's been kind of exciting. And uh, because it's privately held and it's a relatively flat structure, you get decisions quickly and you don't have a lot of the typical corporate real estate department BS, like, you know, stressful committees. And, you know, a lot of times we just meet over lunch and talk through things on a napkin and go forward and it's great. So we're in the process, uh, company bought Carl's Patio a couple of years ago. So we have a lot of undersized stores. So we're in some cases moving from 24 or 5,000 feet to 50 or to 60,000 feet and adding brands into store under one roof because the current facilities are just too small to have um, adult kids and patio all in one. Um, so it's an exciting time actually to be at Rooms to Go. And you know, we're, we're in a segment of the market that you know, we're not the high-end luxury end of the market. So um, what we sell is selling and tends to be very popular. And, you know, the company has been successful for a number of years for a lot of reasons. And that seems to continue. So knock on wood, you know, hopefully we get through COVID okay. But uh, it's, a, it's a fun place to be right now because unlike a lot of companies where they're laying off and furloughing people, you know, we're, we're in growth mode. Um, and with our new DC that we were opening this summer in Nashville, we're going to be able to hopefully go into some additional markets from there. So it's very exciting. That's really exciting. Cool stuff. Where was and where is the majority, tell the listeners, Carl's Patio, where are those stores? Well, they were a Florida company. So we just, we operate right now, um, the furthest west we are is Midland, Texas, and the furthest north we are is Richmond, Virginia. So we're not in Arkansas, but we're in pretty much up the states in between, in, in Metro Nashville and Knoxville. Um, the Carl's Patio stores were predominantly were Florida. Um, we just opened a number of them at the same within a month or so of each other in Houston. 
Um, we are in the process of a reload in Corpus Christi, so we'll have it there. And we're getting ready to, I think, roll, roll out some stores in Dallas. But Florida has been kind of the stronghold. We now have a few open in Georgia, uh, one in Myrtle Beach. So we're, we're creeping northward with it. And I, we've now got it in uh, a Richmond store as well. So in Raleigh. So we're gradually, in some cases, we're reconfiguring space and, if we, and some stores that we may have that are larger. In other cases, we're relocating. We've added on. We've built next door in a freestanding structure. But the preference is really to have it all under one roof. We have one under construction in Fort Myers that we're taking a little bit of kids out of the adult store. So it'll be fully adult. And then down the block, there's a new 20,000 foot kids and patio store under construction. So it's, we've been really creative with it. The nice thing about this company is it's very flexible. A lot of companies have a specific prototype. And although we do architecturally try to stick to a couple of different prototypes, we're very flexible in the store footprint and the layout. Are most of the stores that you're working on now, you're buying the land and developing? Yeah, most of them. Most of them we're purchasing and self Will you purchase an existing building? We have, um, and we have, con- we have converted. We have one under, under it's close to closing now. Um, but most of the time, we, we don't find buildings often that work for us. So we typically like to have our stores with prototypical glass look on the front because, you know, our founder's vision is that the, the customer likes being able to interact as they're walking or driving by and see what's going on in the store. And it's very inviting. People don't buy furniture like they make groceries. So having a memorable trademark building in a place that people know is when they're ready to buy, they know where to go. But that's kind of the thought. We don't lease in line usually, you know, we're maybe with an outlet center, but most of the time we're building up front on, on major highways or freeways. That makes sense. Are you, are you finding availability of land challenging? Your size is big. Do you have to assemble properties ever? Sometimes, sure. Yeah. Our corpus was, uh, it happened to be one owner, but it was five parcels. It, it just, it, it, but oftentimes it's multiple owners and it's, they can be very complicated deals. They're rarely dirt that's ready to go. We get once in a while, we, we find those, but most of the time it's some kind of a redevelopment. And when they were looking to bring you on, were they looking for someone with that development expertise? Because retail guys who are focused on assembling parcels and developing themselves, right? They're looking for landlords to do that typically. Yeah, a lot of times they are. Um, the found, the, 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 when they started the company, the very first employee was a, a, a mensch named Jeff Finkel who retired last summer. And he was, so he's the number, first employee at Rooms to Go and he retired at 70, 75, almost 76. And just a sweetheart of a guy. And the nicest guy I've ever dealt with in business. I love the man. Talk to him all the time. Still. Um, so it was, a, it was an odd hire because, you know, one person had been in this job for decades. And he was, the guy was a machine with his knowledge of the market and knowing how to do things. So, um, I, you know, I had a year and a half here with him before he left. And, you know, it was so funny because the, the last six months have been a little crazy because without Jeff here, I'm like, man, there's really a lot I got to do here. Because <laughs> we're very, there's me and Will Martin. There's just two of us in real estate and we have a lot in the, in the pipeline. So it's a busy job and it's a fun job. You know, you don't get bored. You're doing something different every day. That's what's great about it. That is great. Well, what's going on in furniture now? We I saw Pier One. That. I can't. I can't give away the trade secrets, Chris. <laughs> no, meaning what's going on high level in the market? What's going on in furniture? We saw Pier One just filed. 
What's going on with the consumer and furniture? Well, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I I'm not going to profess to be an expert on the, the furniture trade business. You know, I'm still you know I'm a real estate guy, but you know, we we really play in sort of the mid range of the market. Um, I think you're having. I think what's you're, you're seeing the stores like Pier One. Pier One was a great concept for years, I think, but with the advent of some other brands that have come along and online, I just don't think they could they could you know hang on. And then you get involved with anytime you get involved with you know the crazy debt and you know God knows I've lived through private equity. Um, you never know what you're going to get in that bag. But I think they just couldn't compete. And so it's a, it's interesting what I what I have seen with their disposition is they don't seem to be trying to monetize be monetizing any of the assets. I think they're just kind of throwing in the towel. They're done. Um, which is unfortunate because they probably had some ability there to leverage some a little bit of that, but that doesn't seem to be the case. We're actually looking at some of them for patio stores where we have a store in the market and we can't you know, fit um, the, the patio in the existing facility. So we are, you know, we may be opening a few of the old TP buildings as outdoor stores. Mm-hmm. A lot of those TP buildings are probably going to have to be repurposed and redeveloped or changed significantly because a lot of tenants aren't going to want that look. When you're looking at the landscape of real estate and you're seeing closings and what, and all this stuff going on. While I know you self-developed most of your stuff, are you guys department stores, JC Penny? Do you guys think that's opportunity? We, we actually have, I have one deal right now um, that's pretty far along, but they're tearing down the box and they're redeveloping. So we're buying a four plus acre chunk of the old part of the old box parcel. Um, we probably wouldn't reuse the boxes themselves, but if they can be redeveloped, I have another one I'm looking at where they get the JCPenney back on one side of the mall. They've got an open space on the freeway side of the mall where I could go freestanding and they would be able to get the parking done because they could tear down the box on the other side. And the box is probably past its prime and they need to do out parcels or hotel or something. So it's interesting. If you think about just the regional malls pre COVID, I was really gung-ho on mixed-use, alternative use, you know, university uses, you know, all kinds of things, scraping and rebuilding for whatever or repurposing. COVID's throwing a wrench in it. So, you know, I do think we have, I think it'll be interesting to see after all this sort of washes out, if we re-examine the capacity of our medical facilities, and I'm talking about regional hospitals and all, and do we need to have you know, some kind of fallback facilities built. But I've seen some repurposing going on with you on the university side. I'm just worried now with COVID that that may change because I think the universities are going to start hurting a lot more. I've seen too many small towns where this is a town that needs Walmart, maybe a Target, power, but it's day of having a mall is over and somebody comes in and buys the mall and redevelop it, you know, spends millions on the interior and it's a great place for people to go walk, but no one's going to open stores there even after your investment. It was just a bad investment because these markets just were too small. They didn't have a really, say, a really strong military base to keep them all afloat or whatever. So, you know, in the, in the advent of power in Walmart, I don't think a lot of these small towns, I mean, I've been thrown a couple JC pennies by people in towns that, frankly, I never even knew, I didn't even know where they were. So it's like, man, there's a JC Penny in this town. It was shocking to me because some of these towns are just so small today and they're not really growing. So I think in that segment, it's going to be tougher. In the dense urban markets, I think it, it's a matter of repurposing. 
and then and I think you'll be fine. But you've got to think the mixed use comes in. And if you've got some governments that are smart, they're going to be proactive in proposing alternative uses. And maybe you salvage a part of the mall, maybe you demall the mall, but you've got to do something. You've got too many big boxes today. And so you're going to have to do other things. I don't think Amazon's going to come in and save the world on all these empty mall boxes. I mean, maybe a few here and there, but I don't see that becoming a thing. And even if they do, what is that from the landlord side? You know, what does a fulfillment center really do for your mall? It does nothing. You know, it, it doesn't help your mix at all. So, you know, I think it'll be really interesting before all this crisis hit, even with some of its really stellar properties. Simon was really aggressive bringing in, you know, hotels and some of the projects, which I think helps. Uh, thinks, I think helps, but, but I think the vertical residential is also going to help. And you've got a customer base built in living right there. So we'll see in some of these denser market, markets what happens. But, you know, in the smaller towns, I think it's going to be really tough unless the city's take an active stance in redevelopment for repurposing. Makes sense. Good perspective there. When I go to a rooms to go, can I, am, is it like most furniture stores? I go in, I see something. I can't take it off the floor. I, you guys deliver it to me. Yeah. Our, our showrooms are showrooms. So we have, you know, DCs all over, you know, we have multiple DCs around the Texas and the Southeast. And we do deliver usually Sometimes same day, but usually next day, unless something for some reason might be out of stock. And we we deliver it from the DC. We cross dock with a lot of we have a lot of these cross docks in small markets. Once in a while, depending on the markets, like you know, the, the border towns are really popular with pickup. So we'll have pickup facilities as well as cross dock locations. But we generally don't do it out of the store. Once in a while, if it's a big enough facility, we can do that. And online presence. Yeah, we have a very good online presence, which during COVID actually was very helpful. I ask this to most furniture folks. What do you think? And I know you're a real estate guy, but what do you think of Wayfair? Where do they fit in? One, do you think they'll open stores? I don't, you know, it's interesting. You hear blurbs once in a while that they might. Um, I think Wayfair is a really great concept. Um, I know whenever I have gone on and looked at it, you know, there's interesting things there. I don't think it's particularly well-priced. There are buyers who will buy without touching and feeling and sitting on it. I'm not one of them, generally. Um, but I'm not your typical consumer either. I, I mean, I'm kind of figured that one out. So, but I do think, I think, I think predominantly people still like to go try it out. But um, we've seen now with even betting and a lot of these, you know, beds and boxes that come, now we're selling them as well. But there's a lot of people who are perfectly happy trying that out and doing it. It's, it's evolved. I mean, online has changed everything so much. And that's what's so intriguing about it. Um, I, I mean, I never re thought I would shop, at a, shop on Amazon the way that I do now. But every time my kid needs a book for high school, I just go to Amazon because I don't want to go to Barnes & Noble unless they forget and tell me, oh, I have to have it tomorrow. <laughs> and then I got to go to hopefully find the Barnes & Noble that actually has it in stock right that minute and go get it. But, um, Good dad going to get uh, it. I bought this for myself. <laughs> for those who can't see, it's a plaque that says best, best dad ever. Best dad ever. That's well, great. I am. I, I, I'm going to pat myself on the back there. I am a very good dad, especially when it comes to those damn school books. That's great. Um, but anyway, I just think we, I think COVID has catapulted online. And I, the thing that I'm afraid of now as a bricks and you know, mortar retailer is, 
that a lot of people now that they've gotten so accustomed during COVID, I don't think they're going back. You know, I still try. I mean, I tried to tried to sign up for the pick up the groceries at Kroger, Publix, or Target, and I couldn't get anybody to get me an appointment for a week. But I think a lot of people have made that switch now with that push, and I don't think they'll go back. I think you're always going to have a need for it, but I think you're going to see more consolidation faster now um, than we would have. I think from that perspective, especially with the struggling retailers, I actually think COVID could be a good thing because it will expedite it. Like, let's just get the bloodbath over. Um, although I thought pennies would close more stores than they are. So who knows? But you know, some of them just need, Pier 1 needed to just, you know, throw in the towel. So I think COVID helped do that. I think they would have dragged it out longer. Some of the real estate's really great real estate and it'll get snatched up. I'm just yeah, sad for the mom and pop side of the business. For sure. I, I think that's the one that really is just going to be brutal, brutally hurt. We'll see. I think there is going to be obviously online sales accelerated, but when I think the numbers come out and I think they will soon, we are going to see that most of the increased online sales were fulfilled at a store. I think the supply chain proved out to be better in a store. You know, I looked, I've said this on other podcasts, I was looking for Pampers. It was going to be six weeks or four weeks on Amazon. I was like, well, that doesn't work need diapers now, went to Walmart. There was multiple stores that had it locally. So one, the supply chain. Two, it's not profitable for most retailers to deliver to your home. Right. And, 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 and therefore, that's going to play out. Can't keep increasing sales at things that don't make money. And it's profitable in the store. And buy online, pick up in store. While you didn't have a great experience during the pandemic, I think that could be a solution to the last mile um, because it gives me the convenience that I need as a consumer and it is a channel to deliver the product at an affordable price sure. to people where they can make money. Right. Because I think, you know, when you have 78% of Americans who are still paycheck to paycheck, you can't pass the price to them. And right. eventually That's the retailer true. will say mercy. Yeah, it's true. I agree. Consumer demand, consumer behavior is changing, no doubt. And retailers have to evolve. The example I, I love is on Father's Day. I got new workout shoes. <laughs> I needed socks. I was going to go to Target to get some athletic socks. And I said, let me just look to see what they got. And I could, the app was amazing. I could get it delivered same day. Wow. I needed them right then and there because I needed to work out before my kids woke up from their nap. And then <laughs> I, I could go buy online, pick it up in the store. I could buy online, have them bring it out to my car, or I could shop the store. All done on the app, couple button pushes. It was pretty right. impressive. Uh, it was very convenient, seamless, and uh, kudos to them for knocking it out of the park on that. I'm amazed at some of the retailers that oftentimes I'll pre-shop online before I go to the store. And I'm amazed at the ones that still haven't figured out how to make it convenient to make it fast on the app. You know, whether it's, I do a lot of Home Depot, you know, shopping and renovation and stuff. And, you know, sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's not. And to compare them to Lowe's sometimes and how, 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 much, how much do they have on the features and the finishes and the whatever that you're looking for with what you're buying. And, and it's just amazing. Some retailers that go on today and they just haven't figured that part out. 
if I go on your app and you say it's in aisle four and I get there 20 minutes later, it has to be in aisle four. Right. It's a really bad experience. If I go there, I looked online, you told me you had it, it's not on aisle four. That's where buy online, pick up in store is great, right? Where if I can order it right there, go get it. And then the potential impulse buy while I'm in the store for the retailer, but I know that I have it. Right. I know that I can get the product. I've had bad experiences where people say it's in this store, in this aisle, and it's not there. That is unpleasant. That's yeah. really inconvenient. And in a world yeah. where time is a precious commodity, you have to be convenient. I have been pretty surprised, though, with some of the smaller companies, whether they're national or the local, but just smaller restaurants, you know, whatever, vets that have figured out how to, you know, make the curbside work and they've done a good job with it. Um, I think people have adapted pretty well to that. So I think it'll be as a land as a landlord person, I think it's going to be interesting to see how it evolves with how we design the parking lots and the facilities to enable pretty much any tenant to bring it out to the car. If that's the, the, the way we're going to be going in the future, we've had, we've actually had a request like that on one of our properties beforehand um, before the crisis hit. And I think it's going to become commonplace now with all of them. We are rolling out park and pickup. Uh, that's what we're calling it, but we're rolling it out at all our properties. I think it's smart. I think it's, yeah. And you have to, you know, I think if, if you can help the tenants, especially the, the tenants that might not be that sophisticated, figure out how to do it as a service for them, as part of being in the center, I think it just makes you more attractive as a landlord. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think it's great. But I think, I think the smart landlords are going to do that. And they're going to be really proactive about it. I, you know, you see all kinds of letters during the crisis about how different landlords handled it, and you know, those that were proactive and saying, you know, I remember the first one I saw that impressed me so much was what um, Butch sent out from Irvine Company, and you know, it was basically saying we've already got this pre-agreed form. If you need to defer rent and blah blah blah, and click here and download the form and sign it, we're good to go. It was like it was amazing. Um, the, the, the landlords that really took the bull by the horns and faced this and tried to be helpful and, and do well through this and their tenants will probably survive better. So it'll be interesting to see how it all washes out. Agreed. You've been a part of some really, really cool deals over the years. You've had, a, you've been on the landlord side, the tenant side, you've done multiple markets. You've, you've seen it all, but you have a really unique deal and a story to tell uh, about a location in Miami, Florida. So why don't you tell us about this story and how this uh, store ended up where it did and which store are we talking about? What's so this is the Office Depot in South Beach. Awesome. And it was, the deal was done in the mid 2000s in sort of little history at that time. You know, Office Depot started in Florida, Staples, you know, was out of Boston. and for a long time, they kind of stayed out of each other's way, and then they started commingling and mixing, and then they tried to merge. Well, the first merger didn't go through, um, but they had evidently shared a lot of private information about each other in the, in the course of it. And Florida was, you know, the stronghold market uh, at the time, the cash cow market for Depot. And Orlando was its number one market. And although they had no stores in Florida or district, Staples immediately went in and opened stores in Orlando. and. I was hired shortly thereafter to basically defend the motherland from the invasion of Staples. So it was a really fun time because 
depot was expanding in those days. Their prototype was about 20,000 feet. We would self-develop, we would lease. It was, it was a fun time to be there. And it was, you know, the, the sort of philosophy at a head of the real estate and exec EVP and head charge of construction and real estate and legal and all. Um, was a guy named Mark Vander who's from New York and he's hysterical. And, you know, Mark's whole thing was, we are not going to stop every one of them from opening, but damn it, if they're opening there, it's going to be because we give them permission. So it was fun because we, we did a lot of deals. Some of them were very defensive. Well, in Miami-Dade County, Depot had not opened a store in a very long time. Probably I think it was eight or nine years. And it had a lot of holes and it was very vulnerable to being out positioned or at least chip around and chip away at some of the cash cows, which when you're coming in seconds, a lot more fun as a retailer because you can go after the fat cat that's already gotten there and you can pick away at them. And, and taking profit out of a very profitable store for your competitor is a lot more painful to the competitor you know, than it is for you when you're trying to go in and make profit on your incremental investment. Anyway, right. South Beach, the whole Miami Beach market was completely unpenetrated, as was really south of North Miami, uh, all of the east side of Miami. And at that time, it was the mainland part of Miami was really, really um, it hadn't really started taking off yet. And this was, I can't remember how it all fell in the sort of the life cycle of Miami Beach, but Craig Robbins had you know, already bought up Miami Beach, gotten a transition, you know, all the beautiful people came and followed Versace. And Robbins was now investing over in the mainland in the design district area, which is really hot today. But, you know, you had a, great pop with great income and Miami Beach is divided between South Beach, the Southern tip, which is very urban, mid beach, which is largely call it suburban residential, but it's, you know, houses with yards. And there's a strip kind of between North and, and mid beach that has retail and office. And then you've got the density either on the mainland or down in South Beach. Off market to penetrate. And in those days, Lincoln Road rents were starting to go north of 50 bucks, which is outrageous. So I had in mind this box and it was a nightclub. And it was for, you know, it was that era of time where sort of the sort of the gay, the gay community's zenith in Miami Beach was kind of peaking and it was starting to get, you know, moved to more to the mainland. But it was a, had been for a very long time, one of the premier gay nightclubs in America. Had a reputation, you know, all over the country. It had closed and somebody else had tried to reopen a new nightclub in it. And, and you know, it was, Mosley wasn't doing very well, but um, this box is sitting at the corner of Alton and West, right in between, right on the cusp of South Beach and Mid Beach. And that part of South Miami Beach years ago had been developed as a wholesale district. And there was a Publix up the street that was a very old Publix. And Publix was building a new one a couple blocks from the first one, and they were going to keep both. And everything, you know, a couple blocks between that and here was just largely industrial and kind of grungy. And one of the local brokers in town was trying to buy a lot of it up because he knew what the future was going to be and how this area would transition. Anyway, I, my broker was uh, at the time was Paco Diaz, who's from CBRE in Miami, you know, originally came from Cuba when he was a kid and, you know, knew Miami like back of his hand and we're touring around and we're looking at a multi five-story project that Berkowitz is going to develop down at Fifth and Alton way at the Southern end of, Miami Beach that's not convenient to the bulk of the population. And, you know, so I pointed to this box. I'm like, look, they have parking. They're at 
corner of two great streets, one of which leads to a bridge to the mainland. I'm like, we really need to go after this box. It's like, man, you're crazy. You know, not going to work. I said, Paco, find out who owns it. We got to find out. So he calls me back a day later and he's not going to believe it, but I know the owner. He goes to my church. He's this Greek guy. And I said, oh, well, my mother's side is, you know, Macedonian Greek. Great. Set up a meeting. So we set up a meeting and nice man. And George Donitus, to this day, he calls me every once in a while to say hello. And uh, he said, you know, George, I'd love to lease this box from you or buy this box. I can't sell it, but I got to get rid of the tenant. So it took us nine months to negotiate and get the tenant to finally agree to a buyout. But when I did the site tour, the biggest challenge was I had to keep it quiet because if the other brokers in Miami knew about this thing being available, we were doing this deal initially at 15 bucks a foot. It was an as-is deal. He wanted to keep the air rights over the building, which I knew probably didn't matter, but $15 was ridiculously cheap, but we had to renovate the building. We had to keep it quiet with everybody. And I had to do the site tours. And I took my boss down, Mark from New York. Mark, get, he's a New Yorker. He gets urban retail. He, he, he didn't even go inside. We drove, we literally drove up to it and he saw the parking lot and he saw the building and the presence. And he said, approved. You need right. to go inside. No, no, get it done. Amazing. We do the operations tour. That was a different story. So the operations <laughs> tour, you have, in those days, operations had a lot of sway and they, you know, they really didn't, they were very skeptical about a lot of things sometimes with, you know, good reason. But, you know, this was far from that, far enough from any stores, we, there would be no cannibalization. We, we knew where Staples was going to go at South and the beach. It would completely outposition them, which was part of the attraction of it. It had parking. It's going to be an expensive nut to renovate the building. But um, we go on the site tour and I have my, you know, my head of ops, who's a very polite guy, nice, very reserved guy. And then I've got the regional man, the regional district, whatever operations manager, who's six, six, he's this big guy and he's kind of very bubbly and, you know, just a super nice guy. And we're going to see it on a Monday. Well, the weekend before had been a leather bondage theme weekend bash. Oh my God. All girls got in free and they were trying to like have it. So I didn't know what we were going to find, but I was kind of warned. Well, you know, we haven't cleaned up yet from from the, the weekend parties. I'm like, okay, well, we'll see what happens. <laughs> so we come in and we're touring around and it's this, you know, it's, it stinks, you know, with alcohol everywhere. It's just nasty. It's, it's gross. And it's a two-story building, which also makes it worse because people really didn't do two-story buildings. But um, it had an open atrium area. And so I'm selling as literally I'm walking over, you know, all kinds of crap on the floor. And like, no, like it was trying to sell what it could look like and how we could do the floor here. We could open up windows here. We go upstairs and there are big cages and chains. And I thought the guy, the 6'6 guy, I literally thought he was going to pass out on me and collapse because he had never seen anything like this before. And I'm thinking, man, oh man, this is not. I'm never going to get this deal approved. And this is, this site is gold and I've worked and it's gold. This site is gold. and you know, location, location, location. Well, all they can see is whips and chains and, you know, empty cans and glasses. And- I've been on a lot of site tours. I've never been on one with whips, chains, and bondage and cages. To God, I mean, I was like, should I have? So then, so we get through this and manage to convince them that, yeah, and forget the fact that we've got to put in an elevator and, you know, we got to completely renovate the building and, oh, the city wants us to add in a bunch of windows. 
Well, it turns out originally it was actually built as a meat market back in the 40s or 50s. And then it was converted years later to, a, yeah, it was like a wholesale market that sold to grocery stores and merchants in Miami years ago. So the city wanted us to sort of bring it back to its original retail purpose and they were extremely cooperative. And we got the deal done finally. And, you know, there was concern because, you know, occasionally this club could have been rented out for major, you know, parties because there's still a lot of gay fundraisers and stuff in Miami Beach. So, you know, Depot joined the Gay and Lesbian Chamber of Commerce, invited everybody there. You know, we had a big grand opening. Smart play. Yeah. So it turned out to be a really fun event. So it really turned out, and the store did really well and took off and did far better than it was projected to do. So it was a huge win. And when we got it finally open, when I went to my first ICSC show, and one of the biggest brokers in Miami Beach is Lyle Stern and, and, and Mickey Finkel. And Lyle comes up to me, and he owns property across the street that he was trying to sell as, you know, future new office, office like individual, like condos or office or in this quasi-industrial area. And he came up to me at this ICSE, local ICSE show, and he looked at me with this grin on his face, and he stuck his hand out and he said, I have been trying to get control of that property for years he said how in the hell did you do it and i said I look, and i couldn't resist i'm like well lyle if you're willing to take it as is you can get anything in miami beach for 15 dollars a square foot and he about passed out because it was a really cheap deal wow years later people were coming at this point fresh market's now in a new building across the street and i was back at depot briefly a couple of years ago before i came to this gig and we would get calls from developers who were trying to get us out of that lease because they were willing to pay my landlord $25 million for that site. And so they can build it, go vertical with it. And, you know, that lease will eventually run down and that building will eventually, you know, it'll, it'll come down. Um, it's not going to stay there forever, but you know, it was a fun deal. And I think out of all of the deals I've done, it's probably the one I'm the proudest of because I, you know, it took me nine months to get it done and I managed to keep it secret and nobody stole it because it was a really good deal. I was very wow. Deal. First, congrats, because even though it's years and years later, that's one of the best stories I've heard on this show. That <laughs> is incredible from the fact that it was a nightclub, to the fact of, you know, Office Depot being really smart and joining, embracing the community. And that's a definitely a lesson to all retailers, embrace the community you're in, joining the, the Gay and Lesbian Chamber of Commerce at the time. That was, you know, really good. and. You know, I think all retailers and landlords need to support and be inclusive to all the communities that they're in. So that's really awesome. I think the fact that it was such a, it was not an on the market deal, right? It was an off the market deal that you're like, I need to be here and you made it happen. Not a lot of people can do that. A lot of people. All I did was look at those white wall, beige walls or whatever and say, that would look great with an Office Depot sign on it, right at, you know, one of the best intersections in the market for, for cars. I mean, because it's not, it's a largely, a lot of it's a pedestrian market. But there aren't a good, lot of good places to go. And it had like 22 parking spaces. Are you kidding me? You don't get that in South Beach. Yeah. So it was, it, it was a great deal and a fun deal and probably will always be one of my favorites. Almost, you know, Using my golden retriever as bait to get the one bet to sell for an assemblage once. That's another good one. But that one's, I'm not so proud of that. I'm like I was using my child to get. That'll be for another episode that you're Whatever. on. Whatever. Yeah. I, I also like a lot of people take the path of least resistance and you had a vision of what this property could be and how powerful it could be to the brand, all the things that did it. 
outpositioned your competitor. It you know gave you new presence that you didn't have. It rarely, even in the mid two thousands, could you open a store that wouldn't in your I don't want to call it home market, but home yeah, market that well, yeah, it was a home market that didn't cannibalize another store. Wow. All and the people that opened to the south, as soon as they could get out of that lease, they left. You know, that was the, the interesting thing about a lot of the deals I did at that time. We had defensive plays that were literally so that when they opened, they would suck and they would close. And they closed a lot of them. One of them actually was the first generation rooms to go building, which we huh. ground leased. And we subleased, and it was complicated, and we just got control of it back and are now opening a patio store. So it's kind of funny that stuff it comes back. That whole period with the, the office wars, and you know, same with the drugstore wars, it's amazing how that stuff comes back around later and how it gets recycled. That is really cool, full circle for sure. Anyway, the... when you're old enough to be in the business as long as me, Ressa, you'll get it. <laughs> feel old. No, nah, I feel young. I'm just kidding. That's, that's called children. That's called children. I feel young. I'm just kidding. I'm grinding. I'm still in the grinding phases. I'm going. You know, the other thing, you were making all these defensive plays, uh, which is interesting because I don't know that that happens as much anymore. Uh, but I, I, I think that one of the things that's interesting about that story is obviously you had the defensive play. You had the, the branding of Office Depot, secure this unbelievable piece of real estate. You had to get ops on board. You had this vision. But I think the other part that was interesting is the, the brokerage community wanted to go, have you go in a different project. And right. you didn't want to go in that project. You didn't think that was the project for we you. We let the competitor have that project. Yeah, I think you on let purpose, the Because we knew it wasn't the right place to be. <laughs> yeah, I think that's an, interesting, that's an interesting point that we don't hit on enough. But, you know, you kind of, you went contrarian against what the, the market was trying to convince you to do. And you said, no, I want to be here, which takes some guts, right? Because if that blows up, which this wouldn't because it was so dynamite, but if that blows up and, and you're a real estate person and you're, you're looking at the CEO right. and he's telling you, the whole market told you to go here, everyone's saying that, and you took me over here, but it ended up being a win. Uh, that's really awesome. Kudos to you. Unbelievable story. I think the listeners are going to love this. This is one of the, the better stories we've heard. Really appreciate it. Oh, my God. I still can't believe that day. I look back and I'm like, I, it could have gone really, I could have lost my job that day. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. Well, that brings us to the last part of the show, retail wisdom. Got three questions for you. Tell me when you're ready. Okay. All right. Question one. What is your best piece of commercial real estate advice? Um, trust your gut. My guts. I mean, it's, it really interesting. Trust your gut. I was going to tell you something else, you know, when you, you mentioned this before, but, but really that's when you said it just now, that's what comes to you. Cause my gut is whenever I've gone against my gut, oftentimes I've gotten stung. My gut's usually pretty good. So if, you know, I think a lot of people are afraid to trust their gut because they're, they're insecure and it takes a while to develop that level of confidence for the youngsters in the crowd. So, you know, you need to develop that level of confidence on your own, but you're generally your gut is right. At least mine has been. That story proves that out for sure. Second question, extinct retailer you wish would come back from the dead. <laughs> well, I consider them extinct because I think it's a very different concept than what they have that it, I love the Home Depot Expo brand. I li I've lived in 
DC, Atlanta, and South Florida, all of which had that. And, you know, I love that concept. And I'm sorry that it didn't work because um, I thought it was a great brand. Why did you love that concept? Um, they carried higher end stuff. They stocked it. And if you, everywhere I've lived, I've, I've moved a lot. So I typically buy dumps and, you know, renovate them and then I'll flip them later. So for me, it was a, you're able to go get stuff you can't get in a normal store without custom ordering it. And you could touch it and feel it again. I like to touch it and feel it. So you could, you could touch it and feel it and try it all out. And the prices were great. That was a great concept. Loved it. When they closed the most, and actually the one here in Atlanta, Rooms to Go owns it. And we've, we have a Rooms to Go store, a towel shop, and a Best Buy in it. We bought the old expo that's down the street from our store here at Perimeter. And I used to go in that store all the time when I lived in Atlanta in the, the I guess, early 90s, mid 90s, whatever. And I was always in that store. I loved it. That's the first time someone's mentioned that store. One of the most interesting stories. This is turning into one of the, 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 the better interviews what out there. Usually say, what do they usually say? The most common answer has been Blockbuster. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't care about Blockbuster until the kids came along. Then I was in there every weekend. But. Yeah. Last question. This is going to throw you for a loop. I'm in the market for a new wallet, Nick. I came across one of the hot-selling wallets are Ridge wallets. Very unique. They are metal. They are titanium and aluminum they have all these difference and they the branding and the story is about trying to get you to do more with less they're very simplistic but you can do a ton with them i am on their website right now okay what is the titanium burnt ridge wallet retail for well i've never heard of this concept <laughs> i've never seen it now I'm going to have to go look it up. Um, it sounds really expensive. I'm going to go $29.99 and say it's not. $105, but thank you for playing. <laughs> <laughs> I was wrong. <laughs> Nick, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. Yes, it was fun. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal that you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us at retailretold at dlcmgmt.com. This show highlights the stories behind the deals from all perspectives. So it doesn't matter if you are a retailer, broker, entrepreneur, architect, or an attorney. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.